Welcome to the Daniel Workman Show. This is yours truly, coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It's 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call. All time zones in between. And we're joined by one of those time zones all the way over in England by Senior Mr. Jack Gidney. Jack, welcome to the show. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So, Jack, um, you you grew up in England. You spent much of the last, what, 10-plus years in Southern California. Um, the weather's the same in both places, right? 
Uh, yeah, I did 14 years in Los Angeles, and you've caught me on one of those days where the weather is pretty similar. Um, if you'd have called me yesterday, I'd have said, no, you're mad. But today it's very similar, so I'm in a good mood. Good deal. So um, do, does the weather change there in England like quite frequently, just rain, sun, rain, sun, or is it kind of come in waves? Um, honestly, mate, it, it, lately it's been um, absolutely no no rhyme or reason to it. I Last week I had a couple of great days of sun. I went out to take a training session at night and got there and snow started coming down and it had been sunny and warm all day. So um, at the moment, I'm dressed for everything. (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. So before we dive into all of the topics that we're going to kind of get into, um, you, just for for everyone watching or listening, you have the, the privilege and the honor to watch Manchester United lose today to Barcelona at Old Trafford uh, in a few hours. And um, just quickly, kind of give us your thoughts on, on what you're hoping to see in that match. Uh, yeah, I, um, I have some family friends who have season tickets at Old Trafford. And fortunately for me, and unfortunately for him, he can't go tonight. So um, I was front of the queue to get the ticket. But... Uh, you know what? Growing up, Manchester United-Barcelona was one of those games that it, it, it sticks with you. Um, so to, to be back there, it's going to take me back to my, my boyhood and staying up late to watch the Champions League when it was what it was back in the 90s. So um, I've, I've seen Barcelona a few times. I've obviously seen Man United a lot over the years. Um, but mostly when I've seen Barcelona, it's been you know pre-season in the US and it's not quite the same. So to see him go and hammer and tongs tonight and to see, in my opinion, the greatest player to ever play the game, Messi, in, in full flight. Um, it, it's going to be really something. I, I'm not quite sure how to describe it, really. So, again, just hope it's a, a, a really good game. Hope both teams go for it. You know, the first leg's always a little cagey, but, um, you know, when Messi's on the field, magic's possible. So, Totally, totally. I, I had the... Um the opportunity to go to Iniesta's last Clasico last May and um, at, at the Camp Nou in Barcelona. Um, my son and I had gone to Europe for some soccer stuff, and I, I left him in Denmark for 24 hours and flew down by myself to Barcelona to go. Um, I, I had to see Iniesta play live in a Barcelona jersey in a regular season match Um and, and for it to be his last Classico, it all just kind of worked out. We were going to be in Europe at the same time anyway. And uh, although Barcelona did not win that night, it, it was it was one of the was top two greatest soccer nights of my life. Um, and it was a 2-2 draw. And if you're not going to win, but you're going to see goals from Messi, Suarez, uh, Ronaldo, and Bale, it's not a bad night. And, um, and so it, it was amazing, um, an amazing experience. The other time I got to see, uh, Messi play was Argentina, Panama in the Copa America 2016 actually was shortly after, um, you and I had had met up in LA and, um, and that night he didn't start the match for Argentina. He was coming back from an injury, but came in in the 60th minute in soldier field. It was one of the coolest things I've ever experienced because the crowd was just chanting his name for like 10 minutes warming up and uh, he came in scored a hat trick and had an assist in 30 minutes and it was and it was all right in front of me I, I had uh, picked my seats 
at the end uh, you know, end zone area of a, an American football field for anyone that not unfamiliar. So right behind the, the kind of the area where he floats from as a seven, kind of tucking in and, and being down that wing. Because, you know, watching Barcelona, I know that's where he plays. And, and so when the game started, they were going in the opposite direction away from us. And, uh, and he wasn't on the field. So I was like, well, if he comes in, he's going to play right in front of us. How cool is that? And then he comes in and scores – you know, an amazing free kick and all that. It was unbelievable. So hopefully today when you get to Old Trafford, you get uh, one of those experiences and he puts on a show. He typically, from what I remember watching him, whenever he comes to England, it seems like he always enjoys himself. So, um, I, to be honest, I think over his career, he's enjoyed himself. Very well. <laughs> That's but, true. Uh, he is the goat. You know what? It, moments like that are uh, uh, why certainly I fell in love with the game and why you fell in love with the game and why the game what it is what it is so tonight I go as a neutral um and just go and watch hopefully some of the best players play so I, I'm I'm considering myself very lucky today you are very lucky and just know that that there is at least one person in America extremely jealous of you today so when you leave uh the show today just know that you're taking all of my uh, hopes and dreams and well wishes for Messi and Barcelona when you when you walk into the thought, stadium. I thought you were going to say your son then, but okay, I'll go with you. <laughs> uh, him too. Uh, the, I have indoctrinated both of my boys, and uh, there's, a, there's a rule in my house. You can root for any team in the world in any sport except Madrid. So um, – that's the only one that gets you kicked out of the house. So they're they're well aware and they are well suited up in their Barcelona gear all the time. So, um, so l- let's get into it. Um, you have an, an experience and and background in coaching, and a lot of times when you talk to a coach or you talk to someone involved in the game, maybe the business side of the game, whatever, they're always coming purely or or for the most part from a uh, male side of the game and um, you have experience in both I just want to take a minute and and have you kind of compare contrast what you see in the men's game and the women's game you know on, on a global level uh, it's interesting because the there, there are obviously there are obviously massive nuances as far as the coaching side and the technical side and and man management and and things that keep groups together and what players look for and and the structure. Um, and I could probably spend all day talking to you about those. But on a global scale, it's very interesting because at the moment we find ourselves in a period where the money in the men's game in particular is it's gone crazy. Um, I don't think anybody would have dreamed the money would be where it is. I mean, you're getting players now. Not only are they getting all their money on the field and performing, they're getting money for Instagram posts and tweets and it, it it's it's unbelievable. Um, the women's game, um, certainly from a European perspective, has only started to be taken seriously probably two to three years ago, maybe maybe four or five years ago. Um, and you're now starting to see the 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 shoots in the growth um, of the game. I mean, everybody's seen the well publicized. Uh, attendances in in spain a couple of weeks ago at juventus um the english national team and and the women's premier league over here and the uh influx of cash next season from barclays it's now starting to come in and i don't want to say that money is everything but it certainly creates more opportunities um to increase the quality um within the league 
Um, so I've um, I left Los Angeles to kind of spend some time in the women's game here in England, and you're just starting to see the top clubs um, are now fortunate enough and have the capability to heavily invest. Um, and there are some absolutely outstanding coaches um, and some really outstanding young players coming through um, on the youth side in particular. So I think the women's game is growing. I think it's still at a stage where it's maybe where the men's game was kind of 30 years ago, where the players are still accessible and in the lower leagues, they're, they're working other jobs. But you're just starting to see the turn um, in Europe of, of that to go where it is professional where you're now growing up as a young girl you're not a girl that plays football you are a football player um, and I think that that is a, a dramatic shift in the mindset uh, of the young people over here so um, with that being said um, what when you when you talk about investment what what kind of investments are being made um, in the women's game now that were not being made five years ago can you give some specifics on that you know for the audience like what does that yeah. mean when you use the word well, investment well, first of all first of all at the top end in particular there's an investment of wages for players that are capable for them to live off previously that was not the case they they had to work other jobs so a, a female player and top female player now can dedicate her her life to her craft of being a, a professional footballer. Now, with that comes the um, the need for full-time coaches. So not just guys who, you know, work four or five, five days a week in, your, in an office job and then coach a couple of nights a week, but full-time professional coaches who have experience in the women's game. And as everything professionalizes and becomes full-time you, you know what it's like with any sort of training the more you're doing something the better you become at it so that influx into wages into coaches into sports scientists into analysts into physios into general managers and heads of recruitment it now becomes like the men's side has been for years it's now being paid the same attention and so what you're seeing is the quality increase as the players are in better environments I know a lot of your clubs over here, particularly in the top end, they also offer housing. You know, West Ham, West Ham, who went full-time professional this year, they they have apartments where the players can stay. So you take that cost away from them of of having to pay rent and having to pay the bills. And this kind of uh, of investment is providing a good platform for a changing culture and the first generation of, of female players to do this as their career. Um and what's happening now is the younger girls uh, are seeing this and seeing that, you know, I can be a footballer because it's a lot different. When I was when I was seven or eight years old, I played in a, in a boys team in the Sunday leagues. And uh, my friend from school, he had a twin sister and she was a phenomenal footballer and she played in our boys team. And, um, you know, I remember our, our first game of the season, we asked the opposition if we could play a girl. And the guy kind of laughed at us and said, sure, if you want to play a girl, go for it. Well, we won 3-0 and she scored all three. Um, and then after the game, he complained to the league that we we played a girl. So we had the points taken off us. So that that mentality and that mindset from, you know, 20, 25 years ago, it's gone. Now you're a young girl growing up. 
you're, you're playing with a professional academy, you're in an RTC, you're playing in boys' leagues as well, and the chance to become a professional footballer is there for you. And particularly in England, with the success of the national team over recent years, the chance of international success is arguably, I mean, four years ago, it was higher than the men's, but it's arguably as high as the men's now. And that, that is the, the biggest difference in what's going on over here at the moment. So how have you seen the, the fan reaction, the supporter culture, supporter reaction to the women's game? Has it been growing at the same type of rate as, as the investment has been coming in as well? Has that been kind of commiserate? Um, has it been the same, think, more or less? I think there's still, there's still a... Um, it's, I think it's very generational. I think there's still a slight stigma attached to it from, you know, the good old boys who sit in the corner of the smoky pub by the dartboard and drink 10 pints and then go to the game. I still think it's going to be hard for those guys to go. Um, but I think these younger generations that are coming through, they've seen the success of the women's team on the national scale and they're open to it. And particularly in, in Europe where the, the men's clubs, it, their women's side is attached there's a loyalty to the club and to the brand. And when you support a, a club over in Europe, it, it, it's part of who you are. It's tribal. It defines you. So there are a lot of clubs where, look, if the men's team aren't playing that day, they'll go to the women's game if they're at home. And that, that's a huge difference. I mean, you see, you see Juventus, they offer free tickets for the game that was in the, in the stadium and 42,000 people showed up because it's Juventus. It's in the stadium. It's part of them. And, and that's something that I think the, M, the MLS and, and the United States Soccer Federation, they're kind of missing out on, you know, you look at Orlando City, for example, and Orlando Pride. And for most people, they would say, well, they're the same. They wear the same uniform almost. They play in the same stadium, but they're very different. They're two different entities. And so for them to not be aligned with each other or any cities where, I mean, you look at Chicago, the Red Stars and the Fire, they're totally different organizations. And you think, well, you're missing out on support there by not being unified, by not being one. One brand, being, one club, yeah, one, one badge. One brand, one club that the people of Chicago can stand behind and say, I support Chicago Fire or the Red Stars, whatever it may be. I support them. I support their men's team, their women's team, their under-23s, their under-18s, their girls, DA. I support all of it. And that is something that happens over here because when you support a club, it, it's part of you. It defines you. It's part of who you are. And I think the U.S., I think that they're, they're missing out on capitalizing on, on that support by distancing themselves from each other rather than trying to unify themselves. And I think, you know, I could go on for longer about that, but I think that's generally a problem in U.S. soccer, that there are so many different entities all trying to do something that they don't all come together and make it as good as it can be. Yeah, I mean, I was having a conversation with someone yesterday about this idea of the way that we are structured in America right now under U.S. soccer. It's a, it's a closed system, meaning that every organization, every league is basically kind of left to themselves, even in, in the hierarchy of professional leagues where there's, you know, three divisions, n none of those are attached to one another in terms of competition. Now, the USL is obviously attached to the championship and USL League One, 
in branding and in a, in a global sense in terms of a corporate name and corporate brand, but the teams themselves are not necessarily like, like the English football league where they're moving up and down between the championship league one league two. So one of the things that we were talking about yesterday in this conversation was that due to that, you see in America, this, this emphasis placed on leagues over clubs and the real heartbeat of the game in a global sense, the in my experience, is club over league, meaning that it's it's it is exactly what you're talking about. This this tribal relationship, this identifying um, relationship that you have with your team, your club, and and therefore because that's the mentality that that it's it you know if I am. If I am, you know, from Liverpool, I'm I'm likely, you know, a blue or a red, and whatever I am, that that is who I am in all things and with all teams, and and we're one badge, we're we're one club, but we may have a you know an academy set up, we may have a a, a ladies team, we may have a men's team, but th- that's my club, and in America we've segregated and segmented everything and and because of that isolated mentality we've created this insular culture where when teams like Orlando or Chicago are looking at you know creating a a first team for women the thought rarely crosses their mind that hey they should be part of what we're already doing it's oh we're we're gonna we're gonna launch a new brand, we'll we'll kind of connect them together maybe with some colors and some similarities, but they're gonna do their thing, we're gonna do our thing, we're kind of kind of maybe be associated uh, somewhat, maybe there's kind of a handshake, uh, hold hand hand holding uh, relationship, but we're not really one entity, one club, one organization, and you know I as as I look at U.S. soccer, and I look at what I'm seeing, especially on the women's side. I want to stay there for a second in, in Europe. I I think that what we are seeing right now with the the attendance of matches in Spain, in England, in Italy, I I think over the next ten years, the the women's game in Europe is going to explode. I think it already is exploding, but I think it's going to explode in in such an incredible way. And and yet, I look at what we're seeing in America, and it's like falling apart. I mean, we we lose teams. There's there's no real excitement and energy. There's no there's no organization, no growth, no connection to to you know, what we just talked about with one club compared. I, th- I think, I, th- I think it's, it's, it's tough to say because in the U S in particular, the women's game has always been the, the, the pinnacle. Uh, um, the United States has always been the pinnacle of women's soccer. Um, it was the place to be. If you're a young female player, it was the place where, you know, the American dream, you can go and be a professional footballer. But I think that what's happened is over the last few years, as, as the game has been taken more seriously here in success, becomes apparent the shift is happening so i can speak uh, you know i've worked in the women's game in the u.s from you know your average club team up to the wpsl in college the shift here is that they're now putting in place a structure to be able to to get success quickly 
And I think the US may be, as most teams do and most most facets of sport when you are the best for an extended period, they've got a little bit complacent with how they view it and how much effort they're putting into maintaining staying the best. And I think a sportsman of any category would, or a sportswoman of any category would tell you, winning is one thing, but maintaining that is a totally different ball game. So I, I, I've been over here looking at, at the youth football of the women's and girls now here, they, they play for their Sunday league team. They play for a professional academy or, a, or an RTC, which is a regional talent club, which is run by the FA. So they play in these. Now, in these RTCs, quite often at the younger ages, they're playing in the boys' league. And then many of these girls are also playing in a boys' team. So they might be part of three teams. So they are playing football probably every night of the week and both times on the weekends. So I've, I've been watching young girls play football here that are playing more football than the young boys here. And so what happens is with growing up in the culture of the game, in the media here and and go into games here and the, the just environment they're in, their understanding of the game is quicker, it is taken on board quicker. They're playing more minutes. They're playing at higher levels. They're playing against boys. They're playing with the best. Their growth and development is rapid. And I think over the next 10 years, you'll certainly start to see the fruits of that labor um, come through on the national scale. And if, if you're not already seeing it before, you know, um, this, this next World Cup will be very interesting. I was having a look at the wall chart today. I, you know, I, depending on the draw, I, I, I think the U.S. could get caught out in the quarterfinals. Now, maybe there's an argument for saying that something like that needs to happen for them to reinvigorate what they're doing in the women's game. I mean, the lawsuit for, for equal pay and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, looking at it, if you're the best in the world and you can't pay, your most successful team on the international scale, what they're due. I mean, what stage are we at here? Totally. Uh, it is, it's, it's, it's a travesty that you have the program on an international level um, that has had arguably the most success in the world over the last 20 years. And they are having to fight for equal pay. I mean, if anything, I've heard the argument for the opposite. They should be getting paid more. Um, yeah, there's certainly an argument. But you know what, Daniel? What's interesting is, and, and you know, you and I have talked about this before, the, the business around it all and the commercial aspect of it. So you look at Luna Bar stepping up. Now, first of all, I commend Luna Bar because first and foremost, before anything else happens, it's the right thing to do. Right. And that is that is the aspect that we we cannot lose outside of all of it. Their Lunar Bar have stepped up and paid the money. And that is the right thing to do. They should get their money. They should do. However, if you look at it from Lunar Bar's perspective, if they'd have wanted to get Alex Morgan to sell, to be in Lunar Bar commercials and do this and do that, they'd have had to pay the fortune anyway. Well, now all of a sudden, just by stepping up and say, actually, we're going to do the right thing here they've all of a sudden they've got ambassadors across the whole squad and arguably women's football across the world it's phenomenal for their brand so there's a massive gap that is appearing in the women's game here because historically people wouldn't get involved in women's sports because they say ah, i can't get a return out of that well that's there's a shift happening 
there's a massive shift happening because now you can get returns from it. You look at the success of Nike with the recent women's kit launches. The women's game is bubbling on and off the field. And I think the U.S. have become complacent. And if they don't grasp what's going on quickly, they're going to get left behind. Well, I, Certainly by the big European clubs who are, you know, they're coming over now and playing preseason and bringing their women's teams and the ICC tournament, um, the Champions Cup in the summer. Now there's four or five teams coming over and bringing their women's teams. The shift is happening right now as we speak. Totally. And, and, and I would actually make, the, make an argument that the shift has already happened. We just haven't realized that the ships have passed in the night. Um, in terms yeah, of the, the program, the direction, if, if you look at trends, um, you, it, it's obviously the hardest thing to do is to stay at the top. I think for me, kind of going back to the beginning of this conversation, it's one of the things that amazes me about Messi is his ability to stay at or or near the top, even when he's when he's maybe off for just a, just a bit, he's still right there at the top. And then when he's obviously on his game, to me, there's there's no one like him. And when you look at the women's game, and and you and you look at the the U.S. program, both uh, from a national team perspective as well as in terms of the domestic play, and you compare that to what you're seeing around the world. Uh, I look at England, I look at France, I look at Spain, uh, Spain and, 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 and the Germans, uh, the Spain and, and, and the U.S. played recently. I watched that match and the U.S. won the match, but Spain played way better football uh, throughout the match. And it was just yeah, a matter of, stuff. yeah, I mean, it was just to me, it was a matter of some execution and and, and, and maybe they're a, a bit young. And, and so the... Um, the, the U.S. players were able to finally kind of uh, do some things with, with their talent to kind of overcome. Well, it's, it's not there yet, Daniel. I don't think it's there yet. I mean, look, you go into this World Cup, if I, if I was coaching, the squad I would want is the U.S. squad. Sure. I would want that U.S. Totally. squad, 100%. It's the best squad at the World Cup. No From doubt. 1 to 23, the depth is unbelievable. But what coaching are they getting? What's the mindset? What's their day-to-day environments like? How are they being used? How are they tactically prepared? I think that's where the U.S. is falling behind because that is where Europe, Europe has invested. They've invested in infrastructure. They've invested in training. They've invested in coaching. They've invested in coaching education. And so when you put all that environment around the player, they become better much, much quicker. Com- completely agree. And, you know, look, it, it's one of those things where – Whenever you are placing a priority on something, you invest your time, you invest your your talent, your resources, your finances into it. We're we're seeing that now happen uh, around the world. I think it's going to continue to pay off. I, I see a trend of growth uh, for especially the the European sides uh, as well as the, the their national teams, and and I hope that. U.S. soccer wakes up and realizes that the lawsuit uh, in terms of equal pay is just a fraction of what really needs to be part of the conversation. And that is that that the that U.S. soccer doubles down and in places a priority on 
keeping our women's program at or near the top going forward. So, Jack, look, I know you got I know you got to go. I know I know that you you have a uh, a wonderful experience coming up here in a few hours. <laughs> Um, and, and I'm, uh, really glad that you, uh, made some time to come onto the show. Look forward to having you on, uh, in the very near future. Daniel, I appreciate it. And I appreciate you uh, giving me a platform to talk about the women's game. I'm very passionate about it. So, uh, I thank you. Thank, thanks so much for joining us. That was, uh, Jack Gidney, everybody. And, um, if you, if you want to find, uh, more information about Jack, you can uh, catch up with him on Twitter at jgidney88. Again, that is jgidney88. And um, Jack is, is a great guy. He has great insight into, um, to me, one of the, the biggest growth sectors in soccer, and that is women's soccer around the world. And um, it, it's 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 definitely um, an an a trend in Europe that I hope America begins to take serious. So um, it, it, it's really exciting, though, to see these crowds, to see what is, is uh, going on in, in that regard. So anyway, our sponsor for the show today is Charity Water. You can check them out at charitywater.org. Uh, they do amazing work around the globe, bringing fresh drinking water to uh, people that that don't have it and it changes their life and uh, if you don't believe me check this out To the Daniel Workman Show. Again, I'd like to thank Jack Gidney for joining us on the show. 
And uh, I am very, very uh, jealous uh, that in a few hours he is going to be watching the greatest of all time destroy Manchester United at Old Trafford. And for all you Man United fans, you can send the hate mail at Daniel Workman. I don't care. Uh, Forza Barca forever for me. And um, speaking of the Champions League, uh, there was a story that, that broke yesterday in the Daily Mail um, and I, I want to to uh, look at that story for just a second. It's by Martin Samuel. The title of the article is A European Closed Shop Would Mean the Drama of Football is Dead. And um, I'm going to post a link to this article um, uh, over uh, on my, my Twitter page here in just a little bit um, so you can kind of see what's going on here. Um and it's uh, it's 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 a great insight into some of the conversations that are happening uh, around the globe in terms of competition. What what happens when with people that have power uh, when when people have power and it's unchecked power and they feel um, no threat or they want to avoid feeling a threat of competition, they often look for ways to put up walls, uh, create a what I call a gatekeeper system where uh, you have to beg for permission to get in. It's not based on your talent, your your um, even your resources. Uh, people often mistake that how much money you have means you can get in or, or not. That's not true. Um, it, 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 it is also a, a decision. It's an arbitrary decision that comes with a lot of these situations. So uh, Martin Samuel digs into a little bit of a, of a situation from Juventus's president who has some ideas on the Champions League. And, and I don't know if you've seen this, but um, one of the things that, that he kind of gets into um, is looking at Andrea Agnelli, who is, uh, hopefully I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He, he is the president of Juventus, and um, he's got some ideas on how to change the... Um, the the Champions League format. So, uh, if you if you look at Juventus, if you've paid attention at all to Serie A in the last few years, um, Juventus has uh, won the league uh, going away uh, consistently. This year, they're winning the league by like twenty points, and um, they're they're on course for an eighth straight title. Eight years in a row. So obviously, at this point, you're not feeling threatened. You're not feeling like I've got a lot of pressure on me. So I'm going to sit around and daydream how I can keep control. And one of his um, ideas is to remove uh, sporting merit from the the entrance into the Champions League. Instead, what he wants to do is kind of shift the Champions League format into a, a an international champions cup style format so the international champions cup if you're not familiar with it uh, uh, you you must be sleeping under a rock it's it's been uh, a hit over the last uh half dozen years or so here in america and uh it's where it's an invitational in the summer the, these are friendlies it's not a it's a it's not a real tournament it's not a real cup it doesn't the, the competition really doesn't matter but it is an opportunity for these European sides to face each other 
here in America and in other countries in in Asia as well, and uh, and and they are able to face off based on an invitation. They're not coming in based on their league finish. So, for example, AC Milan is is has competed in in the tournament every uh, year since it began, and you know in that time uh, since it since uh, 2013. Uh, AC Milan has finished eighth, tenth, seventh, sixth, and sixth. So they're not even they're not winning their league. They're, this is not a, a a kind of precursor to the upcoming Champions League. Instead, what this is uh, is a, is an invitational, and it's it, it's fine for a summer format. Uh, I think it's great that you can kind of pick some teams and figure out a way to make what what you're doing work. Um, it, it's 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 fine. And, and I, I think for fans who would like to see these different matches, it's, it, it's, it's shown that it's worked well. Um, when it gets into the champions league, which is a UEFA, uh, of an, a UEFA sanctioned event, it's, it's a club competition. It's the top club competition in the world. Everyone around the world pays attention to the UEFA champions league. And, uh, when you get into that, the the entrance to that competition is based on domestic league play. It's not an invitational. So if you're AC Milan and you're stinking it up, you're not getting in. Uh, no matter what your history is, no matter who's played for you in the past, you're not getting into the Champions League. You've got to earn it on the field. And what Agnelli wants to do to the Champions League is... Um, he wants to get away from that format. He wants to look at it more as an invitational and he wants to take qualification away uh, from the league position and instead uh, attach kind of the history of your club um, has a bigger uh, say in whether or not you participate in the Champions Cup. So in other words, he, he's looking at the Champions League as becoming uh, more of a glamour project uh, rather than a competitive project. And, um, you know, what that does is it, it creates uh, an endless repeat of the same fixtures. So, you know, Barca, Madrid from Spain, Bayern Munich from Germany, Juventus in Italy, Manchester United in England, we're, we're, we're going to play each other all the time. Well, that kind of loses some of the uniqueness of this tournament because you can have an Ajax uh, come into this competition and they have not been, you know, prevalent in the Champions League for some time. And then they come in this year and they knock off uh, Real Madrid. Well, well, what if the the voters who are deciding who gets into this, you know, new format of a Champions League decide that, you know, hey, Ajax has been down for a few years. Their 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 roster spend is minimal compared to Manchester United and Juventus. They really don't deserve to be in this Champions League, so we're not going to bring them in. Well, we would have missed out on an incredible night of of football at the Bernabeu when Ajax ripped apart Real Madrid. No one expected it, and it was uh, it was fantastic to watch as a Barcelona fan, and um, and and we wouldn't have seen that. And and so what happens as a result of this kind of new format that Agnelli is is looking at? is he he wants to make these changes but he he doesn't 
I don't think recognize the the downstream effects that this would have on domestic leagues, uh, like the Premier League, for example. You know, everything that 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 makes uh, the Premier League good, especially at the top, is fighting for these Champions League spots. I mean, you'll see these owners put in all kinds of money into their teams and they're trying to bring in better players and all of that because they're, they're trying to get access to that competition. It's merit-based on the field. And, and yes, you can invest resources to get there, but you still have to win it on the field. You can't just say, hey, I'm going to pay you an extra 100 million pounds and, and let me in. You've got to put that into a player or to a coach or just to a backroom staff, somebody to help you get there. And, and, and so over the long term, um, you know, it, it, it would definitely diminish the, the quality of domestic leagues, Premier League, La Liga, Bundesliga, Serie A, etc. And in, in the bet that Agnelli is making is that the, the owners in the Premier League and other top leagues around the world are, as in the words of of the of, of the author of this uh, article, are as stupid as he is, <laughs> and uh, and so the, the the point is that you know invitationals are not necessarily a, a bad thing, um, but in the in this context and in this format with with Champions League being directly connected to domestic league play. It is um, it is important to to recognize a few things and, and a couple of thoughts that that stood out to me that I want to read to you um, from from the article have to do with really kind of the downstream effects and I think Martin Samuel did a really good job uh, uh, kind of laying out what this really means if you were to change the format for. Uh, the Champions League. He he said this. He said his scheme to link qualification to historic, not current success, however, is the end of the Champions League as a prestige competition. Once Leicester can pull off the greatest achievement in the history of English football and it ceases to matter in Europe, the Champions League is dead. Once an elite club can finish sixth without consequence, the domestic league is done too. The league must be relevant. Success there must afford entry to Europe. Abandon that principle and the entire campaign is worthless. Why watch if we know the outcome? This season's Premier League title race is compelling, but so is the fight for two Champions League places between four clubs. Tottenham, Arsenal, Chelsea, and Manchester United are separated by a handful of points. Yet what if we already knew Manchester United and Chelsea were through due to their status as past winners? then the drama is dead. And that's, to me, a, a real big point here. I, I was speaking to someone on um, a, a recent podcast who grew up um, in France, and we were talking about promotion and relegation, and, and, and this is the same byproduct. Qualification through sporting merit is the same principle at play here. And one of the things that, that he talked about is... With promotion and relegation, everything matters. Your community, the jobs are on the line. Like everyone is invested. The passion level is so much higher, and and that also includes the drama. and And so, when we look at uh, perspective changes 
to the um, format, obviously that's just something that I think we should stay away, and I agree with Martin Samuel on that. Um, it, it's definitely something where we want to keep things uh, based on sporting merit. So, you know, it's it's um, if we look at the the U.S. domestic league setup, it's it's the same problems that that Martin Samuel is a, is 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 identifying with these ideas from um, Agnelli. It, the the same problems are what exist already in America. You have leagues where entry into the league is not based on how well you perform on the field. It is based purely on your ability to pay and your uh, ability to get voted in by a an arbitrary panel of uh, individuals. And that takes away... All ambition. I mean, we have seen teams promote out of the second division over the last five years that finished last in the second division. So your champion didn't go up, but your last place did, team did because it was a market that the first division was interested in. Uh, it was an ownership group that they were interested in, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so you, what happens in all of these things, you know, people want to try to, 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 to place uh less value on sporting merit and they try to minimize the effects uh, of sporting merit on the system and why we have so many issues but the truth is that when you have a a league that is set up based on sporting merit you are redirecting you are reorienting uh into the game itself the product on the field uh Focus, priority, resources, time, energy, talent is all going into the field. What you see, the product on the field, because that's how that's that is the key that unlocks the next level, whether that's Champions League, whether that's finishing at the top of your domestic league for a championship, whether that is finishing at or near the top to be promoted to the league above you or whether that is investing so that you stay in the league that you're in and not go down all of those things are based on sporting merit those those are outcomes that have been affected because of sporting merit it is a natural thing i talk about this often but if you want to bake a cake and you want it you want the cake to be a round cake when you pull it out of the oven but you throw all of the ingredients into a square pan when you pull that cake out of the oven it's not going to be round it's going to be square because you baked it in a square pan it's the same thing we have here with without sporting merit in america without promotion and relegation we are trying to artificially create uh, environments leagues clubs franchises that are supposed to be focused on the field product, on quality on the field, and yet what we see is actually the opposite, that, that the focus, because that doesn't matter, because it is not the most important thing, the priorities shift. The focus shifts. Now it becomes on marketing gimmicks. It, it Now it shifts to... 
um, you know, bringing in a, a designated player for, for marketing purposes. Let's go get somebody that has been a big deal on the global stage. Let's bring them in regardless of what they do for our team. Uh, we're going to pay them a lot of money and they're going to get to retire here um, and enjoy their retirement. It'll be a less competitive league. It's something they can do for a few years. And we're going to use them to kind of draw fans in so they, they can come and see. And it's the same invitational mentality that Agnelli has has been proposing as a change in format for the Champions League. And that change in mentality with the Champions League that that the the um, format would have in terms of the domestic leagues and the effects on qualifying for uh, the the Champions League that those same effects there by by shifting that to an invitational format is the same effects we already see here and when we when we look at uh, leagues in America right now you have Major League Soccer at the top you have the USL Championship at league, at Division Two and you have USL League One at Division Three. You have a, a, a project in NISA that is trying to launch at Division Three, and then you, you hear these other league projects that are being worked on, like an NPSL Pro or in NPSL One or Founders Cup or whatever that thing becomes. And, and then you hear about the NPSL, you hear about the UPSL, and you look at the landscape of American soccer and it's just a hodgepodge of ideas. Nothing is connected. Sporting merit does not have anything set up to where there is alignment. And this is ultimately the failure of the Federation of the United States Soccer Federation. They have failed to do their job. Bylaw 103 states that they have to follow every FIFA rule period unless there's one exception unless a u.s law intervenes not a threat of a lawsuit not a a a hope or an idea that something could be challenged etc it says a u.s law intervenes that's in the u.s soccer bylaws and when you when you look at u.s soccer and you look at U.S. law, there is no law that prohibits sporting merit. Sporting merit, promotion and relegation already exist throughout the country. The UPSL impl have implemented promotion and relegation with the, the levels of their leagues internally. Other domestic leagues uh, that are operating on a local level or a regional level have implemented promotion and relegation. Youth soccer has seen promotion and relegation for decades. And yet, when we look at the professional game, when we look at uh, the, the national leagues at the adult amateur uh, level, semi-pro level, you don't see promotion and relegation. And there's no U.S. law that prohibits it. So we should have it. And, and, and by not having it, we are allowing ourselves to to fall short of our potential. We are allowing ourselves domestically to, to not reach um, the, the top level that we could reach. I firmly believe that American soccer, 
that U.S. soccer, that the United States of America could be the greatest soccer country on earth. We love sports in America. And if we give American sports fans the best quality on the field, the best quality off the field, which will only come by redirecting the priorities and focus of all of these clubs and leagues and franchises into the on-field product. If we get if we can get there, we can get to a place in in a very short time where the United States of America, if it's not the best soccer country on earth, it is competing for that title. As opposed to where we are now, where you have, you know, Major League Soccer putting a franchise in New York in Yankee Stadium and watching grass roll up on the weekends. It's it's ridiculous. It's embarrassing. And we've got to do a better job from a federation level. And my my complaint uh, of of the federation is not a criticism of just being pessimistic. In fact, I am the op- opposite of that. I am I'm actually very optimistic. I believe I probably believe more than they do in the potential of American soccer. I, I go beyond this idea that US soccer um, has of itself that it that to make soccer the preeminent sport in America. Instead, I think that soccer in this country can can be the best in the world. And that should be our stated goal. I, I have no problem uh, looking to to inspiration from um, President John F. Kennedy, who said we were going to put a man on the moon by the end of this decade. And lo and behold, we pulled it off. Uh, I think we should have one of those moments in American soccer where we come together and we say, look, we are going to become the greatest soccer country on earth in 10 years. Here's what we're going to do to get there. And, and we are going to create a unified system of leagues where we place the value on clubs over leagues. It's about club mobility. It's about club viability more so than, than on, on leagues themselves. We are going to create a structure that allows clubs to flourish, to thrive, that allows the product on the field to become the best that it can be, that, it, that, that brings into alignment every club in America from youth to adult to generational, which is a combination of youth and adult. And we are going to bring everyone together instead of this hodgepodge, mishmash, segment, segmented, segregated setup that we have now. We're not getting anywhere close to reaching our potential the way we are currently constructed. And, you know, I, I, I hope that movements and projects like this NPSL Founders Cup and the NPSL figure it out. I hope that they start to figure out how to connect to one another. The, the Founders Cup group of teams and the NPSL, they've got to, to start to, to, to provide some leadership, especially in the lower division uh, levels of soccer. And they've got to set some ego aside. They've got to do what's best for the game and come together and realize, hey, what we're doing now is not going to be what's best going forward if if we are going to be an open connected system of leagues so let's restructure what we do now to be prepared for the future and let's connect together let's get these teams that that have ambition have resources that want to play on a higher level let's get them on the field let's get them playing 
and let's help build this project of connected leagues and do our part. And then hopefully as we go and grow, we can continue to connect both laterally and vertically, horizontally and vertically all across the country so that we can have once and for all a connected system of leagues. So that's my parting thought for today. Thanks for joining the show. I'd like to thank Jack Gidney for coming on the show. And, um, you know, as always, you can learn more about what we do with the show and everything else by going to DanielWorkman.com. If you want a shortcut link, that is WRK.MN. Find me on Twitter at DanielWorkman, Facebook.com forward slash WRKMN. Again, thanks, Jack, for coming on the show. And hopefully tonight, in just a few hours, you will watch my Barcelona destroy Manchester United. That's all for today, folks. And uh, look forward to uh, seeing uh, everyone again tomorrow as um, we close out the um, these last two shows for the week with Sheldon Grizzle on Thursday and John Townsend on Friday. So again, thanks for joining the show. We'll see you tomorrow.